following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. Genesis 5, we're going to continue our walk through the book of Genesis. You know, if you if you watch any um, sports or you watch any TV, uh, you probably have seen one of, one of my favorite commercials on TV right now is an insurance commercial, and maybe you, maybe you've seen it, right? And there's there's a couple different ones of them, but one of them in particular that just cracks me up is uh, this young couple is down on a trip to the river, and they're unloading everything there, and the guy is unloading the back of the you know back of his SUV, and he says to his girlfriend or wife, whatever. Says, uh, did you get the life jackets? And she said, no, you, you said you get the life jackets. And they had this little debate, you know, and he, you know, which is a great thought. He pulls out this red challenge flag. Have you guys seen this? Have you, have you seen it? And he throws it on the ground and she says, well, you got one challenge left. And so he throws the flag on the ground. And then this review screen pops out of nowhere. And they put on little headphones and they look into the review screen to look back on their past conversation. And then she had, she gets this snarky little look on her face, right? You know, you guys know that look, right? To look when your wife knows that she's right and you're wrong. It's that moment, right? That feeling, right? And she takes the, the headphones off and she puts them on the little hanger and she says, you know, my favorite part of that whole thing was when you said, obviously I'll get the life jackets. And then the commercial, you know, and I, I thought to myself, what? What a, what an invention. How cool would this have been? And how cool would this be to solve the amount of problems that go on in a home, right? I mean, we, we've been driving on family trips and our kids get into a little fight in the back and you go, what happened? Well, he did it. She did it. And I'd, I'd be fun, pull over, drop the challenge flag, pull out the, the screen and say, no, actually, sweetie, that was on you, right? And then it all ends. How cool would that be? Right? Would that just save us a ton of time? Right? Well, when you read the book of Genesis, here's what you have in the book of Genesis. You are probably at times looking around at your world and you see all the chaos, see all the confusion, see all the weirdness, and you go, how in the world did we get here? And people argue about where we got here, and it's a moment when God basically says, let's just drop the challenge flag and let's pull up the review screen and let's look and see how we got here. That's what Genesis does for us. Genesis is like looking into the review screen and seeing the origin of relational frustration. We can see gender wars, the beginning of the gender wars. We can see all the sexual confusion and chaos in our world. And so this morning, we're going to just once again have that the divine review screen come up into our faces. We're going to put our headphones on. We're just going to look into this screen. And here's what I hope we're going to see this morning. If you're new with us, we usually give a big idea of the sermon, uh, and this will come up on the screen. It should be on the notes as well for you. <clears throat> and here's what we're going to hopefully see this morning. When we live outside of God's boundaries, chaos reigns. But when we walk with God, His grace provides us with hope in a chaotic world. I want to read that again. When we live outside of God's boundaries, chaos reigns. But when we walk with God, His grace provides us with hope in a chaotic world. So let's stand together as we read God's Word. We're going to read some sections of Genesis 5 and 6. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 8 of Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. 
When God created man, he made him in in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Now skip with me to verse 21 of chapter 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Then skip down to verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Out of the ground, and, and saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now read chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 with me. When man had begun to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he, sh- for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of Every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continu- were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I'll blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May God bless the preaching and hearing of his word. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Now let's start by looking at the first point there in your outline, which is, which is out of bounds. Now, just remember what I said in the big idea. When we live outside of God's boundaries, chaos reigns. Now we've seen this throughout the early part of the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter three, after God had told Adam and Eve to, to stay in their lane and not eat of the tree, of the, of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, they did it anyway. And we're all feeling the effects of what they did the moment they did it. Right? We see global conflict everywhere, right? You can't, you can't open your newsfeed anywhere without reading about conflict. I, I read a story this morning that just drew my attention to it. It had to do with sports. Uh, the International Olympic Committee is making a decision whether or not they're going to allow Russians and Belarusians to be involved in the Olympics. Uh, and qualify or not. There's a big battle over this. And the International Olympic Committee chairman actually made this statement that just stunned me. He just said, our business is to bring peace to the world. That's what we do. And I immediately thought, 
does Jesus work for you? I mean, uh, that's an awfully big statement, right? Chaos reigns everywhere. You got global conflicts. You have, you have ladies, you know this very well, pain and childbirth. Hard, backbreaking work to put food on the table. Those are all results of Adam and Eve just not staying in their lane, not staying within the boundaries of what God had set for them. But then in Genesis chapter 4, which Stan did a fantastic job preaching to us last week, shows us another moment like this. We see Cain stepping outside of God's boundaries and killing his brother Abel. Rather than living for God and serving other people, Cain sought to live for his own self-interest. And as a result, Cain's life ends up as a life of isolation and confusion. But then at the end of Genesis 4, we get this really interesting, just kind of a subtle little moment when we read about one of Cain's great-great-grandsons, Lamech, who took two wives. And we go, now what, why is that mentioned there? What happens in this moment? That's the first moment in the Bible when sex is taken outside of the boundaries that God has set up in marriage, and marriage is taken outside of the boundaries that God has set for marriage. It's a moment when you see sex and marriage confusion entering into the world because humans stepped outside of the bounds. Throughout the early part of Genesis, we see humans stepping outside of God's boundaries over and over and over again. Now, you may ask, why is that a big deal? Why does it matter if God set up boundaries? Why can't we violate them? Why can't we do whatever we want to do? And some people have even told me through this series and other places, well, it's because God doesn't want a rival. He doesn't want us as humans rising up to his throne. But can we just squash that for a moment? God is not afraid of a rival. Can we just say that? You can look up a story sometime in the book of Daniel when when a man rose up and said, look at all that I have built. And has since declared himself to be the God of the universe. And God said to King Nebuchadnezzar, hey, bud, go eat grass for seven years. Or King Herod, when he was declaring this great oratory skill, and the people said, the voice of a god and not a man. And the next verse says, and he died and worms ate him. God, God is not afraid of humans rising up to his throne and saying, hey, by the way, I'm here. I'm here to challenge you. God just kind of goes, bink. I mean, it's like, it's not a big deal to God. So the idea that God is worried about rivalry is ridiculous. There are several reasons why getting outside of God's boundaries is important. Let me just give you two. And the first one would be that since God is the creator of all things, and God made us as humans to be the crown jewel of his creation, what God did was he set up everything to serve man as the crown jewel of his creation. You're going to notice something in the Genesis account that God told plants to multiply according to their kind. He told animals to multiply according to their kind. And they were to be those things as man took dominion of them or stewarded them for man's well-being. You're also going to notice that God made man and woman to operate in their God-given gender, their God-given role for a reason because those boundaries were set up by God 
for human thriving and human satisfaction. In other words, the great God of the universe, who is good, loving, perfect, merciful, gracious, and compassionate, actually gave us commands that if we do them, they're for our benefit and our joy. So if we want to have ultimate human thriving, we stay within our boundaries. Or to put it in our common vernacular today, stay in your lane, bro. We'll stay in our lane. That's one part of it. The other side of it, though, is this would mean stepping outside of God's boundaries will create discouragement and dissatisfaction. Now, we actually have an example of this already in the book of Genesis. It's the life of Cain. Notice what the Bible says to us about Cain when Cain stepped outside of God's boundaries and did not offer to God a faith-filled sacrifice. He said, Cain, why has your face fallen and why are you angry? Do you know what the term face fallen, the phrase face fallen means? In our world, it means depression. And I get people all the time asking me, does God's word say anything about depression? My answer is it actually says a lot about depression. And one of the reasons why people get depressed, one of them, biblically, is because they step outside of God's boundaries. And we see that in Cain's life. But let me just, you could do your own anecdotal evidence. How about you? You see moments of dissatisfaction, discontentment, discouragement, depression in your own life. And if you were to check that backward, could you see moments where you just stepped outside of God's boundaries? One of my most challenging days and times of the year is when I'm taking vacation. You know why? I'm now serving myself. I think about my own things. And I get a little uptight with people who kind of interject in that. But when I'm busy actively serving other people and doing things, I'm happy. I'm easy to get along with. I serve other people well. Why? Because I'm living inside the boundaries that God has given. You can see that in your own lives. When we step outside of God's design, we're always fighting an uphill battle. As a result, life is more challenging and more painful. So you can just do a little check in your own life, right? Just ask, why am I discontent right now? Well, go back and ask some questions about what are you, how are you really living? Are you living within the boundaries that God has set for you? Maybe you get angry and you get angry and you say, why am I angry? Well, look back and ask yourself, am I stepping outside of the boundaries that God has set for me? Now, what's also intriguing in the book of Genesis is when humans step outside of God's design, you're going to notice something. It puts the whole universe in chaos. It's very interesting when you read the book of Genesis, uh, you're going to notice something. In Genesis chapter 3, we have a moment where the supernatural, like demonic realm jumps in to our realm, and it's when the serpent comes in Tim's Eve, right? We, you see, you know that story, right? What you're going to notice that prior to that moment, we have no discussion at all about any chaos in the heavenly realm. None whatsoever. But the moment humans sin, notice what happens to the created world. First, notice that God told Adam, Adam, the ground is now going to produce thorns and thistles. It's going to work against you. This world that we live in is under a curse because of human sin. Meaning, humans, the crown jewel of God's creation, when we sinned against God, it, it kind of spun things out of control a bit. But notice chap- in Genesis chapter 6, we get another moment 
where something out of sorts just seems to happen. We're told that the sons of God, now that Hebrew word is for the word, is the word Elohim. It's, it's used every time in the Bible, virtually every time in the Bible, for counsels or angelic beings before the throne of God. So the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any as they chose. And you go, this is awfully a, this is a weird verse. And it even says that the relationships that they that these marriages brought were the mighty men of old, these men of renown. Now there, what's interesting is you go, this is a Weird verse. Let me just caution you. This will not be the last weird verse we're going to read in Genesis. I mean, (laughs) there is some wacky stuff in the book of Genesis, which is one reason why we're doing it is so that we cannot ignore wacky, weird things in the Bible, right? We've got to look at them and go, what in the world just happened here? Now, there are several views on the Elohim and the sons of God that are represented here, and I'm going to write about a lot of them tomorrow in my blog, but let me give you one that I think is very plausible that I think we'll see. When Moses' people read the book of Genesis, they had categories for life that you and I just don't have categories for. And you got to understand that. You bring in your Western, maybe educated mind into the book of Genesis, and you're looking at Genesis through the lens of all of your experiences in life. Well, imagine, if you could, being an ancient Israel and you have all the backdrop of all the supernatural stories in the backdrop, you're going to read into Genesis in the same way. Well, Moses was one of those people. So when Moses wrote this, to the people hearing this, this would not bother them whatsoever. The idea that false gods of the pantheon would come down and intermarry with human women, not a big deal for them. Matter of fact, they had terms for it. We would use terms like, those offspring would be called demigods. Anybody ever watch a Percy, ja- a Percy Jackson movie or read a Percy Jackson novel or anything like that? That's the idea of where this might come from. So when Moses' people read the Elohim or the sons of God, this would not be weird to them whatsoever because they had a category for spiritual things interacting with human life. Now what's intriguing is, We also have a category for it just three chapters back in Genesis chapter 3. None of you had a problem with a serpent coming and interacting with a woman. But the moment it looks a little weird, we go, that can't be happening. Now what's intriguing is, further in their epic stories, think the epic of Gilgamesh or their mythology stories, they were taught that there were heroes or mighty men of old who were godlike or like superheroes. So what Moses is showing his people and what he's showing us is something remarkable. When these Elohim, these sons of God, were taking human wives, they were operating outside the boundaries of what God had set for them. You know how we know that? We know that from Jude verse 6. When God, speaking about these angels, makes this comment that these angels are those who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, and God had decided, you're not going anymore until the last day. Now, we could spend all day and all night talking about what this might be like and how odd this is, but listen, we have a Super Bowl to get to, right, that the Chiefs are going to win now, we got to make sure we're clear about that, okay? 
Uh, right. But there are just two things I want to draw out of this. I want you to see. The first one is this for Moses and the rest of the Bible, the categories of a spiritual world where angels and demons reside and interact with humans happens in the Bible. You've got to have some categories for this. Matter of fact, we're going to see more of it in the book of Genesis. You're going to see a lot of it when Jesus is on the earth, obviously. We just got to have some categories for the spiritual, physical realm and understand that. But but even more, understand what you're reading here. Even spiritual beings have boundaries given to them by God. Don't miss this. Even spiritual beings. So what you're seeing in the early part of Genesis is that when humans get outside the boundaries of God, everything is set to run amok. Everything. We saw from Genesis 3, what did we see? Creation. This earth happens. We saw interpersonal relationships getting in chaos. We saw marriages getting messed up. Now we're seeing angelic beings coming down and intermingling with women? Moses is just revealing to us everything is off kilter because of human sin. Don't miss that. Now, what's fascinating about the human sin you're going to find in the Bible and in the early part of Genesis, which you're going to see this in your world, is how desirous we are to be like God. You have to ask yourself a question. If you're a lady, you have to ask yourself a question. Why would any woman want to... Have, be married to an angelic man. Well, I'll tell you why. Not because they're perfect. It's because humans want to be like God. See, when you read the book of Genesis early on, you are seeing humans not staying in their lane as God directed because they want to be like God. Remember when Eve ate the fruit? What did she say? What did a certain temp, serpent tempt her with? God knows in that day you will... Be like him. Eve, God's keeping you from being like God. Take and eat the fruit. What about Cain taking a life? Friends, anybody who takes a life, whether it's in the womb or it's before that person that God has called to the tomb, is acting like God. They're playing God. To to human women taking on fallen angelic beings in order to create demigods. All because humans want to play God. You have to realize our lust for divinity is what is bringing chaos into your world. You see it everywhere. Listen, if you're not paying attention to the artificial intelligence science of the day, you better be. All that is doing is humans attempting to play God. If you're not paying attention to the beginning of life care and the end of life care debate, you better be because all that's being discussed is we as humans can decide when life begins and when life ends. If you're not paying attention to the genetic sciences of our day, you need to because all that's happening is the world is saying the same thing. We want to play God. We've done it since the beginning of time. When humans step out of bounds, chaos reigns, and it reigns everywhere. In the animal kingdom, in the in the creation, created world, the ground that we work, and in the spiritual realm, and even certainly, most certainly, in our interpersonal relationships. Derek Kidner put it like this about this text. He said, the point of this cryptic passage, and I really like the way he puts that, 
Whichever way we take it is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil with God's bounds overstepped in every, in just, in yet another realm. Now that's a great lead to our second point, which is the curse of sin. Because where is this going? See, a major theme in the book of Genesis that you're going to notice when you read your Bibles is God's blessing on those who walk with God and have faith in God and God's curse on those who don't. Blessing for following God's ways, curse for not. And Genesis 5 is filled with the curse. It's filled with it. You're going to notice a change in Genesis 5 that happens. It's very intriguing. In verse 1, when God made humans, he made them in his image. But notice verse 3, it says something funny. When Adam fathered Seth, Seth was in Adam's likeness after Adam's image. Did we see that? Now this doesn't mean that Seth was not made in the image of God. It meant that Adam, because Adam fathered Seth, God's image is automatically given to Seth, but his image was distorted to look a little bit more like sinful man. Let me give you an example of this. Maybe it'll help you. Maybe some of you parents, some of you teachers, you've done this as well. You pull out a, you want your kids to learn how to trace. You ever done any tracing, right? Right, you don't have to do that anymore. You pull up a computer-generated picture and print it for them. Right now, you say, "Let's let's learn to trace." So you pull out your little Mickey Mouse cartoon book or you know crayon book, and you pull it out. And you say, "Okay, let's let's trace Mickey Mouse." You get a white piece of paper, you lay it on top, and you take your pencil and their pencil, and you slowly work around the big ears and the mouth and all this. And you get done, and you turn the thing around, and it's it's the picture of Mickey, but it's a little distorted. Right? Well, imagine tracing the trace. And just, you're getting just, it's still there, but it's just a little off kilter. When God made Adam, he made him in his image. Clearly, one of the best representation of God. Sin entered the world, and all of a sudden it began to get just a little distorted. And then Adam fathered Seth in his own image. And it's just a little more distorted. See, that's why you can have humans made in the image of God, yet walking and living as if they're made in the image of man. And you you know exactly how this happens. I've encountered non-believers or people before that have remarkable gifts of compassion. Right? They're incredibly compassionate. I go, wow, that, and so it's a lead-in for me for the gospel, because I say to them, have you ever thought how God made you in his image? And they go, what? I said, you're so compassionate. Have you ever known that God is compassionate? And it's a lead-in to share the gospel with him. But in the same moment, I could... talk about their compassion, and three days later, they're blown off their heads in anger. How does that happen? How does that go on in somebody's life? Because they're made in the image of God, but sin has distorted that image. That's why we can say all humans deserve respect because they're made in the image of God, yet that image is distorted because of sin in our lives. Right? You're going to see that's one curse of sin. It just... The image of God just gets distorted a little bit. We don't see it as clearly as we used to see it. Notice verses 4 and 5, though. We see another curse of sin. Notice how long it says that Adam lived. Adam lived, that we're told Adam, how long Adam lived after he had Seth. They had more kids. Then we're told this interesting phrase. All the days of Adam, all the days Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Very matter of fact. And this seems like no big deal to us. And the reason it's no big deal to us is we read about death every day of our lives. We think about death on our lives. <clears throat> we read the obituaries. We have friends that die. 
You're going to notice something in Genesis 5. Genesis 5 is a genealogy, the first genealogy in the Bible of death. Eight times in the book of Genesis, you're going to, in this, in Genesis 5, you're going to notice, and he died. And he died. And he died. When you read this, this isn't just a genealogy of names. I know what most of us do. You're probably in your Bible reading plan right now. You started it in January chapter, January 1 with Genesis 1, and you begin to read, and you got to Genesis 5, and you saw a genealogy, and you went to Genesis 6 immediately. That's just what we do, right? I mean, we see these genealogies, we go, okay, big deal. See the genealogy. What you're going to notice is every genealogy in the Old Testament is intended to show you something. It's intended to show you that when God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, if you eat of the tree in the middle of the garden that I tell you not to eat, you will die. And Genesis 5 is a moment when God said to his people, my promise is true. Adam died. Seth died. Enosh died. All the way down to Methuselah, right? The guy who lived the longest of any human on the face of the earth, he even died. And what you're seeing in this is death being a part of the curse of sin. When you read Genesis 5, you're reading something that every one of us in this room experiences. Death. We don't like to talk about it. We don't want to bring it up. It's not something you sit in your barber chair with your barber and have a nice conversation over death. We don't like to talk about it. Death is the curse of sin. Remember, the book of Genesis is given to us to contrast the blessing for following God and the curse of sin. So Genesis 5, in a genealogy no less, we see the curse of sin being death, putting it right in the forefront. And because we, in the 21st century, experience the same curse we see in Genesis 5, the same curse we saw in Adam and Eve, we have to ask, what does this tell us about us? See, every one of you in the room, you've experienced death of some kind. You've had a family member die. You've read about death. You've watched death on the television screen. If you haven't experienced death, one day you will. The world around you is going to tell you, look, divinity is what we're after, and we're going to find that through pleasure, medication, science, you name it. But it's going to tell us death can be avoided, it can be put off, and it can certainly be ignored until death happens. What do you do then when death is staring you in the face? The world's philosophies will tell us that they don't believe that we've done anything wrong to deserve death. Well, the question has to be then, why are we still dying? If we don't deserve death, why are people still dying? It's not because our science isn't good enough, because good grief, look how long these people lived. Death tells us something. It tells us that we die Because we've all sinned. Paul put it like this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all died. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, By one man came death, in Adam all die. See, the curse of sin is death. 
This means we, we know we've sinned against God because we face death. See, this will help you in your evangelism when you're talking to people. You may say to somebody, look, I know that you think that you're perfect, you haven't sinned against God, all those various things. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to die? Well, yeah. What do you think that means? If you didn't sin, you would live forever. That would tell us that you did sin because you're not going to live forever. What do you do with death? Unlike what your modern music is going to tell you or the news media, while human beings are going to do good things, we all die because we've all sinned. Death is the curse of sin. Don't miss this in Genesis chapter 5. But there's another thing in this cha- in these chapters we've got to see about the curse of sin that takes it further. Notice chapter 6 verse 5. When Moses says that the wickedness of man was very great and the very every thought of his heart was evil continually. What a shocking verse. We are six chapters into the first book of of the Bible where there's 66 chapters and thousands of pages and we're not even six chapters in and we're reading about the wickedness of man being so great and his heart being evil continually. Think about where we've come. The Garden of Eden, walking with God. Peace, joy, harmony in relationships. Adam and Eve just take a little piece of fruit and they eat it in defiance of God. And then Genesis 4, we just take a little snapshot of their family picture. We pull out our iPhones and we go, I wonder what Cain and Abel were like. And we do a little video and we go, whoa, I don't want to show that to my kids. Cain rises up their own son to kill his brother. And we see at the end of Genesis chapter 4, marriage being defiled, sexual Sexual boundaries being defiled. And then we arrive at Genesis chapter 6. All from one one moment, one little dinky moment of choosing to eat a small piece of fruit. And what this shows us is the curse of sin is not just death. It's depravity. Sin always goes from bad to worse. Friends, that's how we are as humans. I I hope you have an understanding of the human race like Jesus did, where Jesus knew that what was going on in man's heart was he was evil continually. And I hope you understand that left to our own devices in the world without the grace of God on us, we would destroy ourselves in a nanosecond. If God's grace were to pull out of this world for one millisecond, this world would collapse underneath our moral decay. What you're noticing in Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis 6 is what began in a garden scene is ending up in like a heavenly brothel. How disgusting is that? What began with with mental and relational and moral peace is now ending with mental, relational, and moral decadence. Man's heart is perpetually evil. That's what you're seeing in the text. Now, what's challenging about Moses' time and our time as well is that we actually kind of think to ourselves, God will kind of be okay with this, right? God's going to reside with us. We're going to walk with God. This will be okay. God will be fine with all of this. And if you saw the news media this last week, you noticed that you saw things like the Grammys where people are walking around in demonic costumes and saying, let's worship and having a satanic moment. 
You see sexual endeavors everywhere being flaunted in front of our eyes. People making determinations of when life can begin and when life can end based on what we think as humans. We want to make laws that fit with our own biases without, while ignoring the concerns of God and thinking that God will never stop this stuff and never stop us from pursuing our decadent pursuits. But God has other thoughts. Genesis 6, verses 3 and 6 and 7, should just stop us dead in our tracks. Our depravity grieves God, and He will not put up with it forever. Just not His plan. He has a time limit on His patience. And what we love to do with this as Christians, just being frank with you, is we go, yeah, see their world, judgment's coming, instead of saying to ourselves, wait a minute, God's talking to His people. Verse 3 shows us that God's patience will not last forever. You see that little time frame? He says 120 years. You guys see that in the text? It's intriguing. When Moses' people read this, they could have read it two different ways. One is God saying that humans will no longer live like 700 plus years anymore. You're not going to keep living 700 years and passing your decadence off. Your time frame's cut short now to 120. You're going to find later on, it. God actually says it's cut even shorter to 70 right? That's one idea. The other idea that I think I find very compelling is that God is actually saying in this text, 120 years later, a judgment's coming and it's called the flood. You got 120 years to get it together, right? And we'll look at a guy's life in a minute who actually preached during this time. Two guys actually preached during this time, right? So there's this idea though, that's in the text. It just basically says God, God, while patient and his patience is long, it will, he will not last forever in that patience. In other words, we cannot presume on the grace of God while living in sin. You're also going to see in verses, in verse six about these words revealing that God is not isolated from our sin, nor is he ignorant of it, but he is grieved by it. Friends, this means that God is a real, living, emotional, interpersonal, being. And it grieves him when we've sinned against him. It pains God and it pains God so much that God says the pain and grief I feel over human sin, I am going to deal with it. I will not let this go on forever. We're going to read next week about the upcoming flood that we're going to read about in Genesis chapter six through eight. And you're going to see God saying, I'm going to deal with this. Now think about where we are in this moment. Here's God grieving over human sin. And think about what we've seen. The end of Genesis, the account of creation in Genesis 1, how did God, what did God declare? It's very good. And now we're in Genesis 6, and God is grieved. He is sorrowful. He's planning to bring judgment to wipe it all out because it's not very good anymore. It is filled with decadence. Listen, for a moment, we, we, with this hanging on us, we, we've got to, we got to do some damage with it. Friends, this text tells us that death is real. We are all going to face death. And that means if death is real, it means our sin is real. There's no hiding from it. And since our sin is real, 
we will all naturally then, without some intervention from God, go from bad to worse. Because we are depraved in our minds, our wills, and our emotions. Let me just drop this in your lap for a moment. It's astounding to think that we're not as depraved as we could be. That's astounding. And we're all under the same curse of Adam's reader or uh, Moses's readers and Adam's descendants. But God will deal with our sins. He will not abide forever. He his patience will eventually run out. There is a time appointed for every one of us to die and in that moment we will stand before an almighty God to give an account for our Lives. So as you're looking at your own life and you think, I can dabble in this disobedience to God for a little bit. Nobody will find out. I can hide myself from my wife or from my kids or from my employer. You just need to know your God sees. He's not ignorant of it. He's not isolated away from it. And it grieves your God. And his patience will run out. The curse of sin is death, depravity, and judgment. Now you 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 may be wondering then, was there any hope? Holy smokes, man! Imagine for a moment being Moses's people. You're potentially just on the outside of Egypt. You just left Egypt. Moses has written the book of Genesis, and he stands up to read this story. And you're hearing about death after death after death after death after death after death, after death. of all the heroes that you know. And you're hearing judgment's coming, and you know that judgment came through the flood, and you're asking yourself, wait a minute, then how do, how do, how, 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 how do we survive? How in the world are we saved? Maybe you are reading this for the first time, and you're hearing this, and you're wondering, how, how, is there any way for God, everybody, to be happy again? Is there any way for God to forgive? Well, that's our last point, which is the hope of grace. You're going to see it in two pictures that you're going to see in this text. And the first one is a guy named Enoch. Right in the middle of Adam's genealogy of death, we're told about this guy who didn't experience death. His name is Enoch. In chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, we see he's the father of Methuselah, who's the oldest guy to ever live. He walked it. Enoch walked with God. He fathered other kids. And after 365 years, because he walked with God, says God took him, which means he was no more. Like, what in the world? What a way to go. I mean, I'm, I'm voting for that thing, right? I mean, are you kidding me? Just bam, God takes the guy. Now, what's intriguing about Enoch is we don't know much about him. But what we do know about him is very significant. Notice in the text, we're told twice that Enoch walked with God. Twice, God says, this man walked with me. He was a man who feared me. He looked to God. Like Abel before him, he was a man who in faith would offer his life to God. He served God, loved God, wanted to glorify God with his life. Right? That's what we see in this text alone. The New Testament gives us two pictures of Enoch that are fascinating. Hebrews 11 verse 5 tells us that Enoch was a man of faith and that he pleased God. It's intriguing. That verse is just before verse 6, which is the great definition of faith, right? Which is indicating to us 
Enoch, among all the people listed, was the greatest man of faith in, in this section of Scripture, which is astounding. But then we're told in Jude 14 that Enoch, not only was a man of faith, but he also preached about the judgment to come. I mean, here's this man looking to God, representing God, just like God made man to represent him in Genesis chapter 1. Enoch is now representing God, declaring to his generation, judgment is coming, you need to repent. See, through Enoch's life, Moses is showing us that faith in God, walking with God, living within the boundaries that God has given, representing God in this world, gives us hope in the grace of God. A.P. Ross put it like this, Here is a man who lived in obedience and fellowship with God and served as God's spokesman. For him, God overruled death. See, God has a soft spot in his heart for people who put their hope in him. God has a has a place in his Heart for people who believe in his great name. God has a place in his heart for people who don't trust in chariots or horses or money or success, but put their hope in the living God. That's why Enoch walked with God and why he pleased God. Quoting Marcus Dodds, A.P. Ross wrote this, Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company. I love that phrase. Because he was going in the same direction as God and he had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. See, friends, Enoch is a picture of hope in the middle, this is a step, in the middle of a genealogy of death. I mean, isn't that crazy? I mean, can you imagine reading an obituary and going through the obituary and all of a sudden you get to this one spot and it says, and this person walked with God and God took him. And you go, what? What? That's what you're reading here. You flip open the news review and somebody gets translated to heaven. That would cause everybody to perk their ears up a little bit. This is a moment of hope. Sorry, Siri just uh, went off on my phone, so hang on. Right? What Moses is saying is astounding. Humans can walk with God by being right with God through the grace of God. Do you, do you see this? We don't have to give in to our depravity. And God's grace can overcome God's curse of sin. But there's a second picture, and it's Noah. Notice what Noah's dad said about him. I find this interesting to me. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, for those of you that wrestle with the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination, I just want you to know it's in the Old Testament, and here it is. Before he was ever born, God made a determination of what Noah was going to represent. And in this moment, I want you to notice something. Noah was going to be a savior of some sort. We're told in chapter 6, verse 8, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We're told later on that we'll study next week, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And notice... Noah, what does it say? Walked with God. Now, like I said, we'll spend more time on Noah next week, but let me just give you two thoughts about, some thoughts about these two guys before we move on. Notice, Enoch and Noah both walked with God. If you want anything ever said about your life, may it not be that you're a, a, just a great dad, a great husband, 
or a great success in your world, may it be these words. And he walked with God. And she walked with God. My wife knows that I have very few end-of-life wishes, but I have one wish, that on my epitaph, it will simply say, he walked with God. He walked with God. Because we want to be people who are pleasing to God. Both of these men were men who walked with God. They were pleasing to God. They were men of faith. And because their faith looked to God, they walked with God and they were faithful to God. And that's Moses' point. Death comes to us all through Adam's sin. We see this in Genesis 5, don't we? But there is a way to escape Adam's eternal curse. How is it? Walk with God, who is the God of all grace. See, both men, Adam and Enoch, had Adam, or uh, uh, Noah and Enoch, had Adam's DNA running through their bones. Both were depraved in their sin, but they had faith in God. They walked with God. They put their hope in the living God, and the curse of sin had no hold on them. Death, depravity, and God's judgment did not consume them. God's grace overrode God's judgment. Now, see, the beauty for us is reading this as Moses' people, you'd go, I, I want to put my faith in the living God. I want to walk with God. The New Testament gives us a greater revelation of this. When Paul put it this way, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to read and see in the New Testament that Jesus is the greater Adam, that he is the greater Enoch, that he is the greater Noah. And we're going to learn next week that, yes, Noah indeed was a type of Savior. But you're going to notice as well, when Noah went into the ark, you're going to notice something fascinating. God shut the ark, indicating, Noah, this isn't your strength closing the ark. I'm saving you. By my grace and by my mercy. Because Noah is not the greatest of all. Noah points ahead to the one who one day will save us all. One who will never die again. And one who will save us from the wrath of God to come. So listen, this this text just stirs us to ask, Do you have faith in the living God through Jesus? Do you? See, if you don't this morning, then listen, we, I would just call you to put your faith in Christ. That's the only hope you have to save you from your sin and to save you from the curse and the, and, and the eternal death to come is put your faith in the living God. The, this faith can help you overcome your own sin. This faith will help you by the grace of God overcome the grave. But but maybe you have. Maybe you said, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. He's my Savior. But there's another challenge for you. Are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? You're going to notice something fascinating with these two guys. There's a fragrance from these two guys of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when Adam and Eve walked with God. Here they are in the middle of a Genesis 3 world living in a genealogy of death, and they are walking with God. In other words, humans can walk with God by faith. And when we do so, 
we will live in the boundaries that God has set, and we will find true, everlasting, all-satisfying life. That's Moses' point. See, Marcus Dodds again wrote these words. We walk with God when He is in all our thoughts, as when any person or plan or idea has become important to us. No matter what we think of, our thought is always found recurring to this favorite object. So with the godly man, everything has a connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. When he falls into sin, he cannot rest till he has resumed his place at God's side and walks again with him. This is the general nature of walking with God. It is a persistent endeavor to hold all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will. When the consciousness of God's presence begins to have some weight with you, you are found instinctively endeavoring to please him, repressing the thoughts you know he disapproves, and endeavoring to educate such dispositions as reflect his own nature. It is easy then to understand how we may practically walk with God. It is it is to open to him all our purposes and hopes to seek his judgment on our scheme of life and idea of happiness. It is to be on to be on thoroughly friendly terms with God. Are you walking with God? Is he momentarily, minutely in your sights? Now, probably chances are we're sitting around going, man, I know there's moments I'm not. I don't walk with God like Enoch. Well, friends, I want you to think about something that just absolutely should astound you. Implied in Enoch and Noah walking with God, God walked with them. Implied in these two men walking with God, it meant that God befriended them. Meaning, God was willing and eager, and desirous to walk with them. Do you want to know why God sent your Savior, Jesus? Because God wants to walk with you. You want to know why Jesus said, If any man is weary, let him come unto me, and I will give him life. I'll give him rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. So listen, your God wants to walk with you. So while you're hesitant, like I'm not walking with God in certain areas of your life, can I just put put that aside and hear your God saying to you, come to me. Come to me. I want to walk with you. I've sent my son so there's no barrier between us so we can walk together. Come walk with me. Stay in my boundaries and find life and life more abundant. Let's pray. Mm. Now listen, as we're, as we're praying, I just want you to do business with God where you're at. I This morning as we were going through early service, it was obvious that God was on people. 
And I want to just take our moment and just let the Lord be at work in you. If you're not a Christian this morning and you know you need to put your faith in Christ this morning, just do that. Tell God you believe in Christ as your Savior and you want to walk with Him. And then before you leave this morning, would you talk with somebody about that? Maybe you're a Christian and you realize, man, I'm not walking with God like I need to. And this morning, you need, you're just hearing your God say to you, come to me. Would you turn your attention to the, to God and go to Him? Ask Him to renew your passions for Him, your desires for Him. And then don't leave here today without talking with somebody about that. Father, thank you for showing us grace in the midst of a genealogy of death. Thank you for revealing to us our desperate need for Christ and our need to walk with God. Thank you for doing business with us right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.